Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 261 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am still queuing for a beer in Finsbury Park. Literally everyone I know went to see Pulp <laughs> at the weekend. Jen, people I knew were meeting people I knew and sending me photographs of themselves. Guilty. <laughs> meeting each other in Finsbury Park. Oh, well, it's such a miracle that we bumped into each other, Jane and I, which is lovely. But yeah, Pulp were incredible. An absolute joy came at the end of a horribly shit week and it was just perfect. Finsbury Park as a venue is terrible. It's the mm. worst. The queues for like beer, toilets, food, everything were literally, and it sounds like I'm being hyperbolic, but yeah, they were literally a mile long. It took people an hour to get a beer. Oh my God. It's Festival Republic. That is not their first rodeo. It was just absolutely disgraceful. It felt like a bit of a a smack in the face for paying punters because pulp tickets weren't cheap because no one buys albums anymore and pulp haven't released an album. I totally get it. And worth every penny music-wise. Oh, thank goodness we ran into Jane, because her pals were at the front of the beer queue, and very kindly, and it is very kindly, added another (laughs) four beers to their tally and let us pay them some cash. Otherwise, not a chance, mate. And and fine, I can totally do a gig without beer, but it's sort of supposed to be a festival. Anyway. Yeah. Add toilets. Can't do a gig without toilets. They did have these things called... I think they were called shekels. And they were little squatty potties for women. And I was a big fan of those. I did shout, is this what we were fighting for equality for? Uh, because <laughs> I don't think it is. But at the same time, it was very useful. A lot of people were still queuing for a cubicle. Well, hopefully that's not going to happen to me tomorrow. <gasps> because I'm Hannah Dunleavy. And tomorrow night, and who knows if this will make a hell mouth open, Ron Swanson and I are going to be in the same room. This is very exciting. I've seen excellent reviews of Nick Offerman's show so I'm very excited for you even if it will disrupt the space-time continuum it's probably worth it yeah I'm just hoping he just talks about woodwork I think there's probably some of that (laughs) he sings some songs and apparently they're adorable yes well more news when it happens (laughs) gosh speaking of hell mouths I'm Jen Offord and last (laughs) night my daughter freaked me the Jeff out right so she starts going to me she's going to bed Mummy, who were the little boy and girl that used to come and play with me when I was teeny? And I'm like, (laughs) what are you talking about, mate? We're in lockdown for a year after you were born and we lived in a one-bedroom flat in Dulce where I had to sleep on the floor on a mattress topper because we we didn't have a hallway, mate. No one came round to see us. What are you talking about? And she's like, who were they? No, Mummy, there were a little boy and a little girl. And I suddenly like, oh, fucking hell, this has gone a bit Hayley Joel Osment. Jesus Christ, what's going on? And I was getting a bit scared and I was like... Are they in the room now? <laughs> like, Did you think you mom? were Bruce Willis? It's like, what, 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 was this a daddy's house? And she's like, no, at our house. And I was like, well, what was the name? And she, <laughs> she goes, his name was Goggy. And I was just like, all right, go to fucking sleep for God's sake. <laughs> Procrastinating. You've got more of this joy to I come, know. Jen. Always at bedtime. I used to have the whole of the Muppets uh, sat on the front of my buggy. Uh, my push chair and so yeah when mum was pushing me about I'd be like mum Miss Piggy's fallen off and I would make her walk back and pick up an invisible muffet and put it back on the bottom of my buggy (laughs) so you know joy till I was 12 that makes me pretend to be a cat and like go for a shit so (laughs) 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 
<laughs> oh, if you ever need help, I'm great at that. I can do that. Great, good. Please, Mickey, because I, I do need help. This imaginative play stuff has gone too far. Uh, my brother used to nick stuff. You had to keep your eye on him. You used to push him around in his buggy and then like leave a place and then take back everything that he had in his hands. <laughs> Just like a really weird variety of stuff he'd just pick up off shelves when you weren't looking. Again, until he was in his late 20s, right? You shouldn't have been <laughs> pushing him around in that buggy. <laughs> I remember once he stole one woman's shoe. From a woman or from a shelf? Uh, no, from a shelf. But I do have a really funny story about my nephew stealing a one woman's shoe, but we'll save that for another time. That is an excellent story. I'm going to think about it and chuckle silently <laughs> to myself for a while. <laughs> Is that the one where he throws it on the train track? Where he accidentally kicks it <laughs> off the train track, yes. Oh dear, I need to compose myself. <laughs> Coming up, I chat to Luma Meffler, CEO and founding director of the Fuji's family about using football to empower refugee children. Tattooist Tanya Buxton talks to me about mastectomy and areola tattoos, the hugely positive response from the women who have them, and the frustration of social media platforms censoring her work. And diamonds might be a girl's best friend, but a flesh-coloured shorts are man's. <laughs> rated or dated, we watch Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. But first, Spy Cops, Suella Flops and Pride Stops. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where actual bits of the country are trying to leave the country. Has <laughs> <laughs> uh, somebody, somebody come into my plan for Cambridge, Sheffield and uh, Bath to just break off? I think people would still be behind your plan. But this one is that the Orkney Islands are petitioning to be part of Norway. I love that. I saw someone tweeting from York going, can we be part of Denmark again, please? Just like everyone's just trying to leave. But yeah, officially trying to get to be part of Norway. Wow. It's quite telling, isn't it? It's quite telling. Yeah, we're being ghosted by parts of our own country. (laughs) Sorry, no longer at this address. (laughs) Now, listeners, we had two Welcome to the Bush Telegraphs this week because Hannah and I both got overexcited about a story. So go on, Hannah. Well, for a second time, Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, careering towards the news like Hunter Biden driving to Vegas at 172 miles per hour while smoking crack, which isn't a joke so much as a headline I genuinely saw. (laughs) How do we know? Because he took a photo of himself, apparently. Who said men can't multitask? May I ask where you saw this headline? I saw it on Twitter, and I believe it was in the New York Post. Wowzers. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, like, Breitbart Times or whatever. No, I mean, it is quite trashy, the New York Post. I think the Daily Mail are now covering it. But yeah, it's all to do with that lost laptop. Yes. I mean, why wouldn't he be smoking crack right now? It seems like a perfectly crumulant <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs> okay, spare a thought for Suella Braverman, everyone. Our Home Secretary is currently walking down the boulevard of broken dreams. Her visions of shipping desperate people to Rwanda, people who have escaped countries where they were at risk and survived perilous journeys to the UK in search of asylum, has been foiled by... Sorry, let me just check that court ruling. Being unlawful. <laughs> Boo-hoo and diddums for Suella. And a bonus good news section for those of us with the capacity for empathy. Yep, last week, the Court of Appeal ruled by a majority of two to one that Rwanda wasn't necessarily safe for refugees. And so sending asylum seekers there could be a breach of the European Convention on Human Rights, which I'll be calling the ECHR from now on. And a huge risk of refoulement, 
which was a new word for me. Yeah. So I hope you don't feel patronised then when I explain that it means the forced removal of refugees back to countries where they will be at risk. Master of the Rolls, Sir Geoffrey Voss, pointed specifically to Article 3 of the ECHR, which is, in fact, incorporated into the British Human Rights Act and which states, quote, no one shall be subjected to torture or to inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. I mean, it seems fair enough. As for Braverman's claim that the boats are full of people traffickers, this letter from M. Reader in Metro Today pretty much sums up my feelings. The vast majority of people crossing in small boats are genuine asylum seekers. To stop people smugglers, let them have a ferry or a plane ticket. Allow them to work while rapidly assessing their claims so that they can pay for food and accommodation. This would save a huge amount of money. Of course, it would mean the government looking for other headline-grabbing scapegoats. Can I just ask, Mickey, is M. Reader, is that actually you? Is that <laughs> no. your pen name? Metro Reader, Mrs. M. Reader. <laughs> I wouldn't write into Metro. Too many broken <laughs> dreams of my own there. No, I, I thought it might stand for Metro Reader. I was like, yeah, yeah, not sure. Anyway, Braverman is refusing to let her dream die and plans to seek leave to appeal the court's ruling. And it'll come as no surprise that given the ECHR is what the court quoted, a lot of those in their corner, that's uh, bottom right if you were wondering, <laughs> have once more begun grumbling about the ECHR and mooting that the UK should leave it. Indeed, a survey of Tory members published on the Conservative Home website on Monday morning suggests more than two-thirds of them want the UK to leave the European Convention on Human Rights. I'm saying it in full again there to remind everyone it's a convention that protects human rights. <laughs> oh, and look, what's that coming over the hill? Is it a monster? Is it a monster? It's a whole load of monsters, or so-called Red Wall Conservatives, banded together to become the new Conservatives. What's new about them? Absolutely fuck all. 30p Lee Anderson's one of them, which should tell you all you need to know. But in case it doesn't, the 25-strong group is basically big on two things. Cutting net migration and being cunts. It's all a massive pain in the cashmere-clad balls for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who hasn't ruled out leaving the convention, a convention that protects human rights for fucking fuck's sake. <laughs> but he knows it'll split his party and torpedo what very little is left of the UK's international reputation. How one woman's dream became the Prime Minister's nightmare. More news as it happens, which it very much keeps doing. I and mean, it's interesting the thing about the Red Wall Gang, because they are just, just trying to destroy as much as humanly possible on the way out the door. Yeah. And I'm surprised Sunak doesn't see that for what it is, because it's going to cause his party to lose the election. Mm. If he wants to stay in power, which I, I kind of think that nobody does at the minute. <laughs> I just think it's a job nobody wants. I don't think he's having then, a nice time, if I'm honest with you, Hannah, but my sympathy levels for that don't exist. What a country. <laughs> I wasn't sure where you were going with that, but you added re on the end. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so many things I wanted to talk about this week, Mick. Catamaran row, mm. Rosie Jones row. Mm. But since I've only time for one, let's talk about Just Stop Oil protesting London's Pride March at the weekend. As you know, I've not always been the biggest fan of the environmental protest group, not because I don't think they've got a point and not because I don't believe in the right to protest, which I've explained my position on ad nauseum, even for me, I think. <laughs> because I don't think standing in front of ambulances or interrupting the snooker wins anyone over to your cause. However, 
in the same way that I don't like Owen Jones, but what? I will concede that he's right on the rare occasion he is. I promised to praise Just Stop Oil when it did something right, and here we are. And in even wilder news, Owen Jones and I agree on this. I'm sorry, I just heard the space-time continuum rip. <laughs> Absolutely ripped. Seven arrests were made after protesters delayed the Pride Parade by sitting down in front of the Coke float for around 17 minutes. And by Coke float, I mean Carnival float, sponsored by Coca-Cola, not some (laughs) ice cream bit in a cola drink, (laughs) which would never have lasted 17 minutes in a British summer, which is kind of the point (laughs) Just Stop Oil are making. I've got so many thoughts on Coke floats, but (laughs) we've not got time. But that was lovely stuff, Anna. Thank you. According to the Beeb, who quoted BBC Radio London's Rob Oxley, quote, the DJ on the float continued to play music and the crowd cheered as they were removed. Which, to be totally honest with you, is surprising at an event that has tried very hard this year to promote itself first and foremost as a protest. Now, I don't describe myself as a member of the LGBT plus community because I've no interest in appropriating their struggles. But the ever-expanding definition of that plus means that I actually could. So I'm comfortable saying the following. Not least because I've been banging on about pinkwashing for years. Yep. Pride's corporate sponsorships with companies like Coca-Cola offer them cover. A company smothering their merchandising in a rainbow flag or joining a Pride march doesn't make it a good guy. Mm-hmm. But somehow, once a year, we seem to forget this even if they are companies with poor records on the environment, like Coke, or poor records on workers' rights, like loads of other companies I could mention, or firms who only selectively support LGBT plus rights in countries where it's illegal, because fuck getting involved in the worst discrimination. Absolutely. I saw a lot of people furiously tweeting Just Stop Oil, saying things like, why not protest Coca-Cola at its headquarters, which I think is missing this point. So perhaps Just Stop Oil's message is failing to get through. But great effort, guys. Big corporations are not anybody's friends and we should stop behaving like they are. Yeah, it's really telling and all of your points are valid. But that that last one always strikes me when you're like, okay, what? but now you're going to hold something massive in Saudi Arabia or, you know, but you're covered in rainbow flags over here. So fucking hypocritical. Yeah. You know what? Just Stop Oil can't stand in front of, Mick. Tell me. The Good News Train. Oh, how do you scamp? (laughs) Which arrives very late, right enough, in the form of the first report from the Undercover Policing Inquiry, which I will henceforth refer to as UCPI. Delicious use of the word henceforth there, honey. I don't feel like it gets used enough, so well done. You are welcome. I'm going to try and get hitherto in in a bit. I'm excited. And maybe where to for? You've gone too far. Gone too far, Hannah. <laughs> now, I say good news because it's certainly good news that we're finally here. But the journey that got us here, well, that was certainly not good. I'd call it bad. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe really fucking bad. Yeah, it was really fucking bad. Last week, UCPI released its first report into the special demonstration squad. A si- that always reminds me of the special patrol group. <laughs> Anyway, Special Demonstration Squad is a secret unit within the Metropolitan Police, which we talk about a lot on this podcast, using the term spy cops. Between 1968 and 2010, although possibly later, 
139 undercover officers spied on more than a thousand mainly left-wing, in fact, predominantly left-wing yeah. and progressive groups, including the family of Stephen Lawrence. If you'd like to know more, last year I interviewed two of the women tricked into having relationships with undercover police officers, Alison and Helen. I'll put that link in the show notes. This report focuses on the period 1968 to 1982, when six undercover officers had sexual relationships with at least 13 women. Officers entering into sexual relationships with the women they were spying on was found by the UCPI to be, quote, a perennial feature of the SDS. The report concluded that the actions of this unit were disproportionate and unlawful, and the unit should have been closed down at an early stage. I mean... No shit, right? I'm going to leave you in the hands of Harriet Wistrich, director of the Centre for Women's Justice, who said, quote... Over 12 years ago, I represented eight women deceived into sexual relationships by undercover police officers. It was through their tenacity and courage in speaking out that the cover on a dark secret hidden even within the Met Police was blown open. This first interim report has yet to examine the many more cases we now know about or draw any specific conclusions as to this practice. It is now clear that had the mayor acted lawfully, none of these deeply damaging, deceitful relationships would have happened at all. The inquiry must now go on to shed further light on the origins of the misogynistic culture that pervades policing today, as exposed in the Baroness Casey Review, and the phenomenon of police-perpetrated abuse. Bravo, Harriet. Indeed, always. The Undercover Policing Inquiry's next public hearings will take place in 2024. So, you know, more news as it incredibly slowly happens. (laughs) Indeed. uh, And more news next week. And if it's along those lines, I'll be pleased to hear it. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we ask how famous women, no, scratch that, women in general, have the fucking gall to not look 28 forever. I mean, what are we actually playing at? I think we can all agree that Harrison Ford reprising his Indiana Jones role at 80 in the freshly released Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which I am legit excited to see, by the way, is laudable and well done him. And doesn't he look 80 for his age? (laughs) But Karen Allen, star of a few of my favourite films, actually, including Scrooge and the very first indie film, Raiders of the Lost Ark, also makes a cameo in this new Indiana Jones outing. And, well, she's 71. How very dare she? You'd think that by 71, she'd have got the memo that this kind of behaviour just isn't on. But no, here she is, the audacious hag, on the Daily Mail (laughs) sidebar of shame, being branded unrecognisable despite being instantly recognisable and looking truly fecking tremendous, rather than, say, an absolutely no shade to Ford like a handsome bull sack. This shit is exhausting. Yeah. That'll do. That'll do, pig. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Tanya Buxton, tattooist, owner of Paradise Tattoo Studio in Cheltenham and founder of the Mastectomy Tattooing Alliance, Tanya, hello. Hi. First of all, how did you get into tattooing? Oh, God, it's all I've ever wanted to do, if I'm honest. I know that's a really boring answer. But yeah, ever since I was a little girl, apparently that's what I used to tell my mum I wanted to do when I grew up. I've just always been fascinated by it and always a bit creative and a bit quirky. So 
I think it was always meant to be. Am I right, actually, in thinking that Paradise is all female artists? Yes, Paradise uh, is an all-female tattoo studio, completely by accident, to be honest. It's not intentional. And we welcome, obviously, all walks of life at our place, including the people that work there. So we are an all-female crew at the moment, but it's not an intentional thing. Everyone is welcome. I think it's a cool, happy accident, though, because it still feels quite unusual. A lot of tattoo artists are still male. It does still feel like it's quite male-dominated as an industry. Yeah, I mean, I started tattooing about 50, nearly 15 years ago now, and it was very male-orientated then as well. Um, there's a lot more female artists now, and some really, really good ones as well, obviously. Two out of three of my tattoos are done by women, and they are by oh, really? far my favourite. Yeah, I've got one by Wolfspit, the amazing Gemma Jones, and one nice. by Sarah Strongarms, who also excellent, so yeah. Love it. Love having a lady put a needle in me. Absolutely love it. <laughs> so you said you were like obsessed with tattoos from when you were a kid. And I wanted to know what tattoos mean to you, because obviously they can mean lots of things to different people. But what do they mean to you? Um, oh, God, I never ever asked that before. Um, to me personally, I like the ones that I have myself. It's It's a form of expression, I guess. I enjoy art, I enjoy being creative, I enjoy street art and I kind of see the tattoos that we wear on our skin as almost like a little storyboard and storytelling journey of what we've done, I guess. Mm. Some tattoos have quite a lot of meaning to me, others don't and are just funny. <laughs> others are just because I really like that person's artwork and I and I wanted the art on my skin, but sort of through my job I see the many other sort of levels of what tattooing can mean to people with the cosmetic tattooing that we do uh, which is also called permanent makeup and the medical tattooing as well and also just all forms of traditional tattoo designs as well you know there's mastectomy tattoo designs scar tattoo designs there's there's just this massive array of reasons that people get tattooed and how tattooing can help people and that's sort of that's the bit I love about it most totally I feel like that falls into the storytelling aspect and you know some stories are painful to tell some stories are been painful and then you're celebratory and so a really lovely friend of the show Mick Tickner said to me you've got to talk to Tanya Buxton she's incredible she specializes in 3D areola and mastectomy tattoos and I was like I I'm getting in touch I'm getting in touch so they are your specialisms and of course they are very important stories for these women who have had breast cancer surgery to tell. How did that come about as your specialism? I love Mick, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's it's a bit of a a bit of a strange one. So I've worked with scars throughout my whole career and I've worked on mastectomy tattoos and top surgery tattoos and stuff throughout my whole career as well. So I've always sort of been very aware of how tattooing can help people on other levels, you know, sort of healing levels, empowering levels, body confidence and all those sorts of things. And it wasn't until I branched into the cosmetic tattooing, which is sort of like your eyebrows, eyeliner, lips, what they call permanent makeup, that that obviously opened me up to a whole other world of clientele and sort of you know walks of life that wouldn't necessarily come to a tattoo studio because it can still feel a little bit intimidating if you're not particularly into tattoos mm -hmm. and, or you know it's not your scene and sort of from that 
even more so, there was all these specialised reasons that tattooing could help people. So I was tattooing eyebrows on ladies that had been through chemo and had lost their eyebrows or, you know, ladies that had had alopecia and, you know, men as well. This this is for everybody. All sorts of different reasons that this cosmetic sort of tattooing could help people. And it was then that the medical tattooing came on my radar even more so. I've known about nipple tattoos. I kind of knew they were a thing, but I think like a lot of tattoo artists, you don't give it a lot of thought. It, I, I don't know why, like, because obviously it makes perfect sense that we do it, but it was, it was never something that was particularly on my radar. And then I noticed through the cosmetic side that a lot of cosmetic artists were doing these nipple tattoos. And I couldn't really understand why, because for me, it's a form of body art. It's on the body. It's not on the face you are recreating something to look realistic which for me is an art form that was how it just sort of triggered my interest and I fell down this rabbit hole to be honest and it's been an absolute wild ride ever since (laughs) um and I, I I absolutely love it it's just took tattooing to a whole other level for me and I'm just loving every minute of it at the minute exploring all these new possibilities and all these new reasons and ways that we can help people through our art and our craft. I I just, yeah, I could talk about it forever. Good, because I've got more questions. So <laughs> it truly is an art form. Your areola work is just utterly beautiful. It actually, it makes me feel a little bit weepy. It's very moving. Could okay. you tell us a little bit about the process from how you start working with someone who wants that kind of work and, and how it moves forward from there? Unfortunately, these tattoos are very, very much needed. I think it's one in seven women are affected by breast cancer in their lifetime is is the statistic at the moment, Yeah, if I'm correct. And also there's the BRCA community as well. So people that go through preventative mastectomies if they carry the BRCA gene mutation. So when it comes to sort of the, the need and how it gets started, there's just a lot of people that come our way because so many people need it, which is absolutely heartbreaking. But it's also kind of amazing that we can do this for people and we, we can help them and be part of this really sort of special moment. So I find, uh, you know, a lot of how it all kind of gets started is people get in touch with us. They've either sort of seen my work or the other artists from my studio like on social media or through our website or good old word of mouth as well we get a lot of referrals from hospitals now and breast cancer charities we're we've sort of we're very much implanted in that community for what we do which is amazing so yeah people get in touch with us directly we usually have a little bit of a chat and a consultation and then at the appointment We'll draw bits on, whether we're doing a double or a single kind of thing. Everything's usually drawn on by hand and we, we colour match to match skin tones and things. It's all very tailored to the individual kind of thing. And you use a slightly different ink to normal cosmetic tattooing, right? Yeah, so with the cosmetic tattooing, which is called permanent makeup, we do use a different type of ink. Um, this ink is designed to be softer in the skin. And it's designed to kind of fade down a little bit quicker over time because obviously it's on our face and we're trying to replicate something to look natural and look soft and a, and a bit makeupy, if you like. So that's the reason that ink is used. When it comes to the areola tattooing, I use permanent tattoo ink with the same kind of ink that I use on all my tattoo designs. 
it's a massive thing that I'm trying to raise awareness over, to be honest. Um, a lot of artists and people within the medical field, that there's a lot of nurses and stuff that do these tattoos as well. They use this cosmetic ink, which is labelled semi-permanent, mm. which to a degree it's very much not. Once you've tattooed, you've tattooed in my eyes. But when it comes to the areola tattooing, you, you don't want to create something that's going to fade really quickly over time. Like for a number of reasons, really, emotionally, that person doesn't want to have to go back to that moment in time over totally. and over again. Tattoos have faded away. It's a very like closure moment for a lot of people. It marks the end of their journey. It signifies the beginning of a new chapter for them now. They've, they're moving forward. They've reclaimed their body again. They feel like themselves again. So for that to fade really, really quickly for me, like emotionally on a person, that's not a sustainable option and it's not a fair option. But from a tattooing point of view and from a physical point of view, to re-tattoo an area over and over and over again for the rest of somebody's life that's been radiated, possibly has gone through surgery, chemo, that isn't a safe option. So this is why I'm a very big advocate for, for tattooing, really. Uh, I'm just sort of letting letting people that aren't in the know know that it's safe. I learned about it when I was researching you and what you do, and I was like, that wouldn't have occurred to me. And you're right, if it's not occurring to a lot of people, that could be hugely triggering and, like you say, set someone back. I wondered what advice you would give to a woman who is post-cancer surgery and thinking about getting a tattoo in this way. I would say go for it. <laughs> is there a time limit is it you must have to wait a little while so we kind of we recommend um a minimum time of 12 months after surgery or any kind of treatment if you've had chemo or radiotherapy or anything after your mastectomy and reconstructions purely because the wounds and everything they heal within a certain time frame but you've got it's a it's a really invasive major operation that you've been through and your Mm -hmm. body's been through so much as well and you just really need to give your body time and there's all these other skin layers underneath. All this scar tissue needs time to really kind of settle and to kind of mature before you tattoo into it. And there can be a lot of misinformation, medical side of things about this as well. I've heard some some people have said that they're good to go for a tattoo eight weeks after their mastectomy, which is mental. But again, it's building these relationships with the medical field to educate them on tattooing and stuff as well. That's kind of my big goal. So yeah, the skin just really needs time to settle because you are causing another injury really. As superficial as it is, you are still causing another another injury to that skin. And I just think, you know, people have been through so much. Their, their bodies have been through a lot. Their minds have been through a lot. And I think it's really important to allow yourself time to process and sort of begin the healing process before you do something permanent to your body kind of thing so yeah 12 is kind of the minimum time we recommend and then go for it definitely (laughs) (laughs) you clearly know your shit and you're clearly really really passionate about it which is lovely and it absolutely comes through in your work as well and also in your off skin work i'm going to call it your off skin work because you founded the mastectomy tattooing alliance on international women's day back in 2021 Tell me a little bit about its incredible work, please. Yeah, so the Mastectomy Tattooing Alliance is a registered charity now. We became a a registered charity back in November 2022. Well done. So when I first started doing the areola tattooing, 
I was working in another studio. I had a little room of my own that was sort of called Paradise. And um, I would offer these clinics free of charge to the breast cancer community. That that was always my thing. I wanted to give back. I think tattooing has a lot to offer. Tattooing has given me a lot. And uh, it's nice to be nice, isn't it? Um, people need these. They're important. They're necessary. So... I always wanted to do some sort of free clinics like that to give back to the community and help out. So I started doing a monthly clinic. So once a month, um, I'd do like a full day free of charge to people. And it just became so busy. I was sort of getting to the point where I was doing like two or three a week. And it wow. massively started affected, affecting my income. I'm just too nice sometimes. So I, I was skint basically before <laughs> yeah. lockdown. Yeah, it's a free tattoos. <laughs> and then it just kind of occurred to me because I knew a lot of other people were doing stuff free of charge as well and helping to give back. I just thought, well, if there was some way that we still got paid, but it was still free of charge to the, the client, then it gives you that financial freedom a little bit more. So you can run these clinics more often and then more people get seen. And that was the whole idea behind the MTA was that we'd kind of create a charity to fund the tattoos so the artist is still getting paid like their equipment and everything's still getting covered no one's out of pocket kind of thing but the service is still being provided for free to the breast cancer and BRCA community but sort of part of the charity thing as well was that I really wanted to promote tattooing if you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like tattoo ink is safe tattoo artists that are properly trained like we do know our shit we know what we're doing and we're we're really good at what we do and you know that things are safe and just to sort of raise the awareness of the options that are out there for people there's so many people that don't even realize this is the thing and or you know may never have thought about even getting a a normal kind of tattoo design but then they see what they can have and that was sort of the idea behind it all was to just get it out there for people make it more accessible and and help more people feel fab i mean it's all excellent i love it and i imagine the response you get from the women and 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 also like non-binary folk and trans men who have these tattoos is incredible yeah it's i i just love it it's so rewarding just seeing the person's face when they look in the mirror for the first time whether you've done a a tattoo design to sort of disguise scars or you've done a realistic nipple on somebody just seeing them look at themselves for the first time in the mirror you just you you can't put it into words it's it radiates out of that person and you just kind of think fucking hell I've done that me and my little tattoo machine have done that (laughs) and I'm just sat there having a great time because I love tattooing sort of thing like you literally couldn't be luckier could you I get to go to work every day do what I love and do this life-changing, amazing, empowering work to help people in their lives. Like, yeah, just feel like the luckiest girl in the world. Aww. Now, I'd love to keep this all like very positive and uh, focus on the great stuff, but I am going to ask you about some of the stuff you have to deal with with social media platforms and censorship, because that is an ongoing battle, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to fight you, if I'm honest. <laughs> Social media are lucky that I've been so busy recently, so I haven't I haven't promoted the campaign for a while, but I probably will now we've spoken. So, oh God, when did I start this? July, I think it was July 21. I started a campaign, there's a petition on change.org called Celebrated Not Censored. 
And it all started with the fact that my nipple tattoo pictures were being removed from social media. Even though it's all labelled, it's a tattoo. There's a very clear before and after picture. You can see it's a tattoo. There's nothing sexual about it whatsoever. But they were being removed under the uh, guide, the sexual content guidelines, whatever they call them now, to the point where like, my account had been blocked. I'd been thrown in Facebook jail. Oh, no. Yeah, I was in Facebook jail for about six weeks once. That was my, that's been my biggest stint. It's because women's nipples are terrifying, Tanya. I mean, we do have to say that because it is true. Oh, wait, no, it's not true. It's not true. I know. Yeah, they're disgusting, aren't they? Horrific. (laughs) Unless it's, you know, for like Playboy or... Oh, well, that's fine. If they're for men, come on now. (laughs) This is the bit that really pissed me off because it was just such a double standard and it, it still boils my blood now. That like male nipples are absolutely fine, and it was actually written in the community guidelines. I think it still is. Um, you might have to correct me if I'm wrong, but it actually says that it's female nipples. So it's in black and white that the only thing they've got a problem is female nipples with female breasts, unless it's. I think they changed it now, like unless it's breastfeeding or for a medical reason. And I I, I just think it's bullshit. It is bullshit. And so I, I started this campaign, I, I started moaning about it, I put it all over social media and like loads of people sort of approach me about it. So I've had other breast cancer organisations come to me as well. Some of them have only posted pictures of like mastectomy bras that aren't even a boob, it's I just a picture of a bra and it's been taken down. It's absolute madness. It is. Some of the stuff that's been censored is just, yeah, it just fucks me off. (laughs) Fair enough, it fucks me off as well. So Celebrated Not Censored is your campaign to get them to sort of talk about it. Where can people sign that? It's on change.org. Yeah, there's quite a bit of content on the petition as well. There's some videos on there that we've made, a few people's stories that I've shared it was mainly for the breast cancer community and obviously all these all these pictures that are being taken down that it was for. But it wasn't until I was sort of shouting about it and, and moaning about it that more and more people came forward. And I feel like it signifies a little, it's more, there's a bigger problem. So it's not just female nipples that are being censored. It's certain body types. It's certain colours. It's certain walks of life it's like if you don't fit in this little perfect pigeonhole that i don't even know who fucking decided was this perfect pigeonhole i think it was an uh, an old white man i'm pretty sure it usually was probably a tory if you don't fit into this certain box then you're inappropriate for the internet or like yeah you deserve to be censored or it's shameful that you're putting it up or and it, it just, yeah, it opened this huge thing. And I thought, yeah, this this needs addressing. And I know I'm not the only one. Bodies shouldn't be shamed. And breast cancer survivor bodies definitely shouldn't be shamed. Transgender bodies should not be shamed. They should all be celebrated. And that's what the campaign's for, really, and, and stands for. So where can people follow you to find your work, chuck some cash, raise some funds for MTA, sign the petition? So, oh God, it's just so many things, isn't there? The Mastectomy Tattooing Alliance, you can find us on Instagram, which is at Mastectomy Tattooing Alliance. Our website is mastectomytattooingalliance.org. There's a donation button 
on the website as well. We sort of we welcome any kind of fundraising that you can do or anything that you can kind of spare would be incredible. Or just even just letting people know about us, just any kind of awareness that you you can raise is is amazing for us. Really, we're quite a new charity. We're only a couple of years old, so we're still in the beginnings of what we're trying to do. The celebrated not censored campaign. If you go to change.org and just type in celebrated not censored, you'll be able to find it. It's in the highlights on my Instagram as well. There's uh, my personal Instagram where you can see all my work and what I'm up to and what I'm moaning about. It's <laughs> you at Tanya Buxton. And then there's my lovely little tropical studio as well, which is on Instagram is paradise underscore Cheltenham. Or you can visit our website, which is paradisetattoostudios.com. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me and good luck with all of the incredible work that you do. Oh, thank you so much and thank you for having me. It's been lovely having a chat. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I am joined by Luma Muffler, founder and director of The Fuji's Family and author of the new book, Believe in Them, One Woman's Fight for Justice for Refugee Children. Luma, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. You yourself came to the US as a refugee from Jordan. I wondered if you could start off by telling me a little bit about your background and also The Fuji's Family, what it is and, and how it came about. So I was born and raised in Amman, Jordan. I came to the United States at age 18 uh, for college. And uh, my senior year of college, my, my fourth year, I applied for asylum. I'm gay and Muslim. And in uh, parts of the Middle East, you can get the death penalty for that. Um, and honor killings are still prevalent. So I knew if I wanted to live as who I was and be true to myself, that I would not be able to live in the country I was born in. I had a really hard time adjusting when I received asylum because my family disowned me. If you know anything about Arab families, that is your whole identity. And so that was like taken away. And I had, uh, you know, my college uh, classmates uh, helped out and took care of me. And one of my aunts of my um, classmates took me in into her home, gave me a job. And she was a Southern Baptist woman, woman living in uh, Highlands, North Carolina. And it was just... I think it's the way people should be taken in. And I ended up falling in love with the South, uh, stayed in the area, moved to Atlanta, which was a bigger city uh, and had more opportunities and uh, still trying to figure things out when I made a wrong turn after going to a Middle Eastern grocery store to get authentic pita bread and hummus. And outside I saw kids playing uh, soccer, football. The way they were playing reminded me of home, of the way I grew up playing in Amman with my brothers and cousins and friends. And they had rocks set up as goals and a raggedy ball. I was volunteer coaching at the time, so I grabbed the ball out of my car. They saw the ball. They ran to me, asked for it. I asked to play in return. Uh, universal language of soccer came in. And uh, that's how it all started. Uh, the initial group of kids I worked with were from Liberia, Afghanistan, and Sudan. So we started playing pickup games every afternoon, then formed a team, and then it grew into a school, and then now multiple schools. And so, yeah, that's how it all started. And so what do you do as a Fuji's family? You you provide education, basically, for, for mm -hmm. refugee children. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the way it works in the United States, if you're a refugee and you come into the U.S., 
you're placed in the age appropriate class, not the level appropriate class. So if you're 12 or 13, you're thrown into seventh grade, expected to do math and English at that level, even though you may have had no formal education in your life and don't speak a word of English. Um, You might get one or two hours a day where you're pulled out, given some support, but the rest of your day is with everyone else. And that's setting kids up for failure. You know, you'd never throw a kid into a match if they don't know the rules and the foundations of the game. And I realized that when one of my players, when I was trying to help him with his homework and he couldn't read to me, and I was just kind of floored. My parents sent me to British and American schools growing up because they believed that was the best the world had to offer. And in my head, all schools in England and in America were like the schools I went to. And that was not the case. I also felt like I was one or two degrees removed from the kid's experience. You know, if you changed a few details about their story or my story, that could have been me. And that's not fair. So. I I think certainly in the UK, I don't know how it is in the US or in other countries, but in the UK is something that I think we've had our eyes open to a little bit recently is that that people do go to other countries, do seek asylum because of LGBTQ plus rights in the countries where they are from, which may be less progressive or less accepting than they are in the UK or or Europe or, or the States, for example. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about that. Like that must have been a very hard decision for you to make because obviously you'd lived in Jordan your whole life, right? And, you know, you, you were... Jordanian and and you basically had to give up your national identity, right? Yeah. I mean, I think people think it's like so easy to apply for asylum. It's like, oh, my life's going to be better. And yeah, my life is better, but the alternative was death, you know, and to give up everything, you know, like your family, your country, your physical home, and then have to start from scratch. Like that is very hard and it's very painful and it stays with you the rest of your life. And I get really upset when, you know, like, and yeah, it's immigration policy in the UK, it's in the United States, it's everywhere. And like, I ask people, it's like, what would it take for you to leave your home? Like, under what circumstances? And those are the circumstances people, like, that's a decision people have to make. Um, And I hope people don't have to ever experience that. But those who do should be treated more humanely. I know that, for example, when we were talking about Qatar and the World Cup being held in Qatar and LGBTQ plus rights at the time. And I think a lot of people were like, well, you know, nothing's going to happen. Like if you go and, and I don't, and I don't think that's the point. The point is that you should feel welcome in, in, mm-hmm. you know, if you're FIFA and you're holding an international tournament, you should feel welcome, whoever yeah. you are to go you to that feel tournament. Welcome and safe and not have to hide it. Right. Exactly. And then like- yeah. Well, nothing's going to happen, but they have a history of stuff happening, right? And so you're like, how do we know? I agree. It would have been a very bad look for the Qatari authorities to have imprisoned an English fan or or, or a US fan or whatever. On the balance of probability, that, that wouldn't have happened. But I, I don't think that's the point. The point is that you should feel welcome and safe to attend these events. And that's why it's important not to hold them in places with regressive laws that, that mean people can't do that. They, they still have them now. Like mm. the World Cup is gone. Those practices are back in place, right? Mm. And so, you know, they can they can make it all look good when the TV cameras are there. But the reality is it's not safe. Yeah. So it's a very long-winded way of me asking you the question, is that how you felt? You felt that to stay there, 
that would be to choose death, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So you were working when you met these these kids. Yeah. This is sort of like, you know, the, the genesis of, of the Fuji family. At that point, you were working as a girls football coach when, when you formed the Fuji's. How did you get into that world in the first place? What what sort of drew you in? I grew up playing it. Like you start walking, you start playing. It was a big part of my life growing up. All sports were, um, you know, basketball, tennis, team handball. The local YMCA was looking for volunteer coaches. I was like, I know how to do this and I love it. And I, I coached those girls for five years and then... I, I met the boys. I mean, what drew me, it's familiar, right? And it's a positive connotation of home, right? Like everything I associate with football is positive, except, you know, some of the matches are not always <laughs> the most positive, right? You know, you we talk about welcoming and belonging. Teams do that. It transcends a lot of uh, boundaries and everybody on the team at some point figures out how to get along and like each other, uh, especially if they want to win. In England, English football has like a really bad rap. I don't know how much, uh, how familiar yeah, you are with it. I'm a Chelsea it. fan. I know oh, how bad the rap is. Of course you are. Yeah. Americans, all oh, Chelsea fans. <laughs> no. My first match was Chelsea against Arsenal. Oh, in, wow. In the UK. And so I like the color blue more than red. And I don't You probably don't know much about my football team. My, my club is Charlton Athletic. Yeah. League One. League One. But uh, yeah, so. Football gets a pretty bad rap for a lot of reasons in England. But I think sport in general has the power to bring about huge social changes. I wondered if you could tell me what it is about football specifically, do you think, that can facilitate that social change when it has such a bad reputation in terms of so many things like racism, like, you know, wealth, sports washing, etc., etc. Is it something that reminds us of what we have in common? I mean, I think there's the commonality, right? We, we're all, you know, whether we're, we're rooting for the uh, same team or not, we're, we're fans of the same sport, right? And it's a game of patience, you know? It's like, it takes a long time. And when it finally happens, it's like magical and beautiful. We've been watching it growing up. Like we all remember those moments more specifically, maybe with the World Cups of those big major goals. You know, like we've seen the athletes call awareness to issues. They have more influence globally um, than any politician does. Like it has the power to change so many things. And it's unfortunate that it has not been galvanized to, to, to do that. We see a few kind of individual players who try to make a difference. Like I guess the guy that springs to my mind is Juan Mata. He used to play for Manchester United. He had this project called Common Goal where he tried to persuade uh, footballers to give, I think it was 1% of their salary to a fund to use. I think, I think it was for disadvantaged children or, or yeah, part, we're part of that fund our okay. programs, part of it. Yep. The take up was pretty low. I think it's fair yeah. to say. And actually there are an awful lot of, of women players who are giving their money. And obviously the women earn significantly less than the men. Yeah. Why do you think that is? What do you think it would take to harness that power for good? I mean, I don't know, like I, you know, like sometimes you're like, oh, these players have egos. They're not going to think of anyone else. But like so many of them started with nothing, mm. right? Because it is the poor person's sport. Like you don't need like fancy basketball court or equipment to play it, right? You know, and you've seen, you know, like I'm not a Ronaldo fan, but he's very altruistic. He gives 
a lot of money to different causes. And sometimes he's quiet about it. Sometimes he's not. But if they united together as a team to do something, like all the major athletes, all the big names, everybody else will follow. I, I wasn't surprised that, you know, more female athletes gave. Um, it was disappointing. It was really disappointing. You delivered a TED talk on the subject of refugees and the Fiji family and what you've been doing. And it's been watched more than 1.8 million times. And the central message to your sort of activism, I guess, is that refugees do not need pity. They need belief and they need support. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So my my grandmother was a Syrian uh, refugee. They fled Syria during the first Assad regime, packed up her car, five kids. Uh, she was three months pregnant with her sixth. Um, they fled to neighboring Jordan. Um, my grandfather decided he was going to stay. It was just going to be another attempted coup. It would blow over. He joined them a couple months later um, after his factory was seized by the government and his brothers were tortured. And she... Um, identified with that experience, very strongly identified as Syrian, and uh, took me to visit my first refugee camp when I was eight. And I didn't want to go. I didn't understand why we would spend our free time going to visit refugees in a camp. Remember when she took me in, I told her I didn't want to go play with the kids. She insisted I I do. I was like, no, they're not like me. You know, they're poor and dirty. I mean, the place was was intimidating and scary. And, you know, she said, Go play and don't come back until you've played with them and uh, don't think you have nothing to learn from others. And later on that day, you know, I was excited. I had played with them. I pleased my grandmother. I said, haram, haram, which means poor them in Arabic. And she used the words different meaning. She said, haram on us, which means that we were sinning because of the way we allowed this to happen. And she said, don't feel sorry for them. Believe in them. So often we see people just feel sorry or look at refugees as negative, as deficits, as they're less than, instead of embracing them for their resilience and their strength and their ability to move to different countries and still have a positive outlook on life after everything they've experienced. And if we can embrace people for that, imagine what they can bring into our communities. Luma, your book, Believe in Them, was published on the 20th of June. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it covers? So it covers a little bit of what we've talked about. It's uh, the starting of the Fugees, um, of, of the team, and then how it evolved into a school, and then how it grew out of that. But it's told through stories, through stories of, of the kids I've coached. I want it to be very authentic and honest, so it's not like all feel good. There's like a roller coaster. It's the book I wish I had when I started this work. Um, it weaves a little bit of my backstory and why I do the work that I do and the values that we have as an organization and how I've evolved and how the organization has evolved to serve the community that we do. And it's got like some, you know, it'll make you cry one chapter and then, you know, start laughing out loud the next chapter. And I wanted to humanize our kids and, and our experiences so people can relate a little bit and maybe root for, for the underdog team. Moving on to something that I think probably for you will not relate to the underdog. The Women's World Cup is coming up yeah. at the end of this month. I wondered, who will you be supporting? <laughs> so I do like the English team. Um, I also like the, the Brazilian team. Um, US, eh, kind of lukewarm on them right now. So. Oh, I thought yeah. you were going to say the US. And I was like, that's why I didn't. That's why I said I don't think we're going to be talking about underdogs now. <laughs> yeah. 
No, they're not. I mean, I like the underdogs. I like, like, I don't. Um, and, and they are not the underdogs. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not. And that's, um, it's funny. Like when we were watching the men's world cup, you know, my sisters in Jordan were here and the kids are like, why aren't you cheering for the U S and she's like, I can't cheer for the U S they always win everything. Like just leave, you know, football for the rest of us, you know? So we didn't cheer a lot for the U S in the world cup. We cheer for them other places, but not, not in football. I didn't grow up with the U.S. as a mm-hmm. big uh, part of my football life, so no um, one did. I, I mean, yeah. that's unfair because obviously the women yeah. are the the best in the world, but um, yeah. the, the the current and long time <laughs> world champion. So that is a ridiculous thing to say. But I mean, like if we talk about the rest of football, you know, right? Yeah, that's how I feel. Yeah. Okay, Loma. Thank you so much for chatting to me. Can you please tell me, I presume the book is available online in in all good bookshops. Can you tell me where we can follow you and where we can follow the Fuji family to keep up to date with what you guys are doing? You can find the Fujis on fujisfamily.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And same with me, Luma Mufla, at, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Stay updated on, on everything that we do. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Luma. Thank you. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Sorry, just give me one sec. I just need to jiggle my tits at a small boy. Okay. (laughs) Jen, what film are we watching this week? Listeners, that happens every time and we just edit it out. (laughs) This week we watched Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, released in July 1953. The film is based on a 1949 stage musical of the same name, written by Anita Luce and Joseph Fields. The film stars Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell as Lorelai Lee and Dorothy Shaw, best buddies and double act, who manage to get themselves in all sorts of scrapes in the pursuit of diamonds and, to a lesser degree, love. It also stars Elliot Reed and no relation, I think, but Mickey, by all means, put me wrong, Tommy Noonan and Charles Coburn, to name a few. No, I'm not related to Charles Coburn. It's fine. It's a musical comedy. And if you've never seen it, you sure as hell know about it with one of its numbers becoming hugely iconic and pastiched by everyone from Miss Piggy to Megan the Stallion. Of course, I'm talking about Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, perhaps most famously paid homage to by Madonna in her video for Material Girl. Films directed by Howard Hawks, a much lauded American director, one of the greatest, if you ask our buddy Roger Ebert. I have to admit, I didn't know much about Hawks, but Hannah, I'm sure you do. Mickey, possibly you do as well. I don't know. Because having directed, produced and written a ton of Golden Age classics, he also had a bit of a run with John Wayne in a number of westerns. Mm. Particularly pertinent to this film is the so-called Hawksian woman, an archetype popularised by Hawks. The Hawksian woman is a tough-talking, no-bullshit character who has agency and acts to get what she wants on all fronts. Hawks didn't consider himself a feminist, apparently, but thought that these women made more interesting characters and, indeed, real-life people. Oh, quite. Wow. 
ahead of his time. Speaking of leading ladies, in 1953, Monroe's star was on the rise. Russell was the bigger star. Monroe took home a studio contract salary of $500 a week, which he certainly wouldn't have sniffed at 70 years ago, but it was a good deal less than Russell's 200000 Still, Monroe did all right out of it, with gentlemen cementing her on-screen persona as dumb blonde and setting her on the path to mega stardom. Whether she did all right out of that is another story altogether. It's a very short one. I think the answer is no. Yes, agreed. Let's have a look at the plots. Lorelai and Dorothy are just two little girls from the wrong side of the tracks in Little Rock. (laughs) (laughs) Performing as a double act, Lorelai is a gold-digging sex bomb and Dorothy is a sucker for a pretty face and indeed a flesh-coloured pair of shorts. She's only human. (laughs) Those shorts are so weird. Dorothy seems to have totally mixed up love and lust as well. So she is a woman after my own heart, I have to say. (laughs) Lorelai is engaged to be married to wealthy Gus and they're off to get married in France where kisses on the hand can be quite continental, apparently. But (laughs) Gus's pops Esmond Senior, that isn't a name, but anyway... He isn't a fan of his daughter-in-law and he doesn't want her travelling with Gus, the old curmudgeon. So she'll be chaperoned by her buddy, Dorothy. Unbeknownst to them, Esmond Senior has hired a private detective, Ernie Malone, to spy on Lorelai and find some evidence of her being a massive slag. This is in order to prevent the impending nuptials. Meanwhile, Dorothy finds there's an entire US Olympics team on board, which does distract her a bit. (laughs) The the smallest (laughs) Olympics team I think the world's ever seen. No women in it either. Just just 20 men. There might not have been details, that many details, women in 1953. But yeah. That's true. There's an entire US Olympic team on board and some deeply seductive badminton rackets. What could go wrong? Oh man, while Dorothy is positively drooling over those flesh-coloured shorts, well you would, Lorelai is flirting with old married dudes and getting into trouble over missing tiaras. Malone is capturing incriminating evidence against her and hang on, now Dorothy's in love with him. It's certainly all a lot more exciting than anything that ever happened to me on the sea cat to Holland. (laughs) The duo arrive in France and have no P's or indeed F's, Franks that is, because the money from old man Esmond Senior has run dry thanks to said incriminating evidence provided by Malone and they are forced to return to work. Fortunately, they come up with a cultural icon while they're there so they should be fine for royalties, but only if they can escape jail first. Will they? And what is Esmond's problem anyway? So, obviously, the film was a success. It almost doubled its production budget of $2.3 million at the box office and became one of the top 10 highest grossing films of the year. It's largely well received by critics and has an 88% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And lastly, it has received praise, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, for its progressive values. Well... Some of them. Hannah, I know you hadn't seen this film before because you mentioned it to me. Mick, had you? I had never seen it before. I think I've seen snippets of it. I'm sure we've all seen Diamonds Are a Girl's yeah. Best Friend, etc. Yeah. But no, I've never seen it in uh, the whole shebang in one go. So I'd never seen it either, which I don't think will come as a surprise to anyone. I don't actually think I've seen a Marilyn Monroe film ever. What's one with Tony Curtis in it? I've seen bits of it, Some Some Like like It Hot. hot. Some Like It Hot. Yeah, Yeah. I don't like Some Like It Hot. Obviously, All About Eve, we watched, she was in that. No, I can't say I'd watched a lot of Marilyn Monroe films. So, in fact, two. I'd seen two. No, The Misfits, which is brilliant, so three. But The Misfits is an entirely different kind of film than Marilyn Monroe usually make. So I wanted to talk, I guess, first of all, might as well talk about Hawksian women, 
What did you make of the two leads in this? Well, if we start with Dorothy, yeah, I liked her. I liked I Dorothy liked her. a lot. She's 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 got a, a, seriously a party going before they've even left the dock. <laughs> she's, just, she's just straight out of the straight out of the cannon. She fires and off she goes. Yeah, I like her. And actually, her values of the two of them are, I would say, she's she's much more my kind of person. Even though both of them are entirely obsessed with men or finding the man, that's not my sort of person. Were I having to go on a long Atlantic voyage with one or the other of them, I would pick Dorothy. She's very independent, isn't she? And, you know, with the caveat that Hannah's just made of clearly ends up with a love match and is looking for love and that is kind of a big pursuit in her life. But aside from that, she's a working woman who pays her own way and frowns upon Lorelai's insistence that someone's got to be very, very wealthy for her to be interested in. Yeah, I liked her a lot. She's funny. She's smart. Mm. She can fucking kick so high it made my eyes bleed. It's incredible. She's got an absolutely nutty wardrobe of sequins. I mean, she's my kind of gal. And also how she is, is how a lot of us are about, say, for example, our sisters in that she will criticise Lorelai, but she won't let anyone else do it. So mm, She's a really good friend. She's very loyal. That's one of the things that it was lauded for, latterly, apparently, the, the loyalty and the kind of bond between these two women. Like They're not competing against each other. They're just kind of like they're supporting each other. I kind of feel like I didn't concentrate enough to know whether this is the case, and I'm sorry for that, because I think it's an interesting point but I thought of it after the event. And that is, it probably passes the Bechdel test because they chat and diamonds aren't men. So I think when they're chatting about diamonds and stuff, it potentially passes because their friendship is actually the key to the film. And sure, they both get married at the end. Spoiler, sorry. But the camera very much focuses on them and their friendship. They're doing it together. But isn't most of it yeah. about them talking about men? But there's a lot of conversations that are just them. But I think they're also talking about diamonds. They talk about how to get her out of trouble. They talk about starting a new yeah. act. I actually thought the bit at the end was really interesting. I mean, I don't like, you know, I think all of the values espoused here are repugnant. But I actually thought that this was quite progressive in a way, although the values, again, themselves are not progressive in any way, shape or form. But when she kind of like has it out with the old man and she's like, well, you don't want me to marry him because I'm after him for his money. And I am. But he's after me because I'm fit. And you don't have a problem with that. So like, do you not think that's a bit of a massive double standard, buddy? Also, I'd add, she also says something along the lines of, you want me to be happy? Well, this is what makes me happy, money. And I actually think that's a pretty, you know, bulletproof explanation. If you're open with yourself, if you're not pretending that yeah. there's more to it, that this man is offering me security and what I value more than anything else is security. Yeah, that in itself is quite a feminist point. Yeah. yeah. Connor and Willa, right? Yeah. In yeah. succession. You know, it's not that he doesn't make a, I mean, obviously much much more open to debate with succession about Connor and Willa. But it isn't just the money for Lorelai. But when he asks her or when she's asked, she's very honest about it. Well, I mean, yeah. yeah, you can still say, well, in that case, no. But you've got to admire that she's honest about it. I have to say, I also, though, love her. And I mostly love her because she reminds me, even though it's the other way around, even though Tanya McQuoid has money, a Tanya McQuoid for a Jen and for anybody else who doesn't know is Jennifer Coolidge's character in White Lotus. Although she is a combination of the two in as much as she's desperate for love, but she has all the money. But she's so like her, having never seen this before. 
was like, oh my God, Jennifer Coolidge must have watched this film so many times because she is so like Tanya. It's incredible, including when she goes and drops that kind of mafia hit at the restaurant and says basically, you know, nice restaurant. Be a shame if no one's heard up, <laughs> which is brilliant. And also when she starts this conversation with three men and then at the same time and then just says, I love a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, even though I don't like her, particularly Lorelai, I kind of love her at the same time, which is almost the same as I feel about Tanya. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, do you think this film is a feminist film? Well, I mean, no. No. (laughs) It didn't pay Marilyn Monroe what she was worth for a start. So a feminist film would have had Dorothy doing the opposite. Actually, it would be Lorelai. It would be easier to accommodate it in the story that Lorelai didn't want to get married at all, in fact. Yeah, I don't think it's feminist because... The women, even though there is a depth to their friendship and they're honest, and I really do actually genuinely like Dorothy's character, not a fan of Lorelai, to be honest, but they are kind of one note, right? One of them's Mm. after money, the other one's Mm. after love. So no, I don't think it it is a feminist film. And also, there are no other women really in the film. (laughs) It's just those two. Oh, there is the woman who says the classic line, do you want to see my tiara? I carry it with me at all times. (laughs) Um, in fact I've just got to mention it now because there is another line that is so wonderful that I think it feels like at the sort of excuse that you could make of Boris Johnson it's kind of statement Boris Johnson could make it says he denied knowing anything about it and departed for the interior of Africa (laughs) 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 that made me laugh a lot they do however do something massively unfeminist which is they drug and undress a man they assault a man yeah yeah and jiggle their tits at children. That that is weird, isn't it? But that does seem to happen a lot in old films. Yeah. Maybe those children looked hungry for milk, Hannah. I don't know. She just got a lot of tit jiggling in the uh, courtroom as well, in the least appropriate courtroom attire I've seen in a what while. What American audiences think of French justice, right? Although, to be honest, <laughs> the same question could be asked literally today. <laughs> And it was still a much more believable courtroom scene than the one in Summer Holiday. So it made me think that. of Summer Holiday, I have to say. <laughs> It really did. Christa Berg wrote a song called Patricia the Stripper and I feel like he took the plot points from that courtroom scene and made it into a song. (laughs) Going back to Marilyn Monroe, she is brilliant. She is genuinely brilliant. I think it's really easy to discard her because she was just the the bombshell, but I think she is an excellent comic actress. That scene where she's coming out the window and she meets that child and that child gives her a list, one of which he talks about animal magnetism. (laughs) It's so weird, but it really, (laughs) really made me laugh. I thought it was genuinely really funny. She looks amazing with a beret. Who would have thought anyone would look that good in a beret? You know, except maybe someone who is French. But there's something really weird happens in Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, in which she's sort of dancing, and a kind of a clump of her hair yes, out. sticking up. And I'm like, why the hell didn't they shoot that again? They just clearly went with one take and went, yeah, it'd be fine. I think the film was much more expensive. I bet it was really practical, but like yeah, and then it cuts and it's yeah. gone. It's like yeah. smoothed back down again, yeah. It looked like quite an elaborate setup. That is a proper singing in the rain, yeah. uh, big song and dance number. The, the singing, as ever in these kind of films, I was like, oh, stop it. Stop it. Why do we need to sing about this? We never mm. need to sing about it. I think she's a great comic actress, absolutely agree. But, and this is personal preference, her voice just grates on me i do not like the way she talks and i know mm. she talks like marilyn monroe but i was just like oh take a deeper breath and then get your words out love i think she's quite an interesting i mean she is for all sorts of reasons but i think she's quite an interesting case study isn't she because this is the film that establishes her 
as this persona that she then kind of like carries into the rest of her career, right? And she actually had a lot of input into fashioning her public image and she kind of like went down that road to the extent that allegedly like quite a lot of stuff about her childhood was sort of fabricated to make her appear more vulnerable because that in turn made her more sexy and you could argue that a lot of quite damaging tropes that exist today exist because of some of that sort of rhetoric that was pushed like of women in film I mean or female characters and it kind of served her well for a time until it didn't because the sex like it sells and it sold her but then when it comes to a point that she wants to be taken seriously then it doesn't it, it's not working for her anymore I think it's all quite interesting I'm not trying to say that she's awful or anything like that I just think the whole thing is like it, it a lot of it kind of wraps up or encapsulates like a lot of the shit that women mm. sort of have to deal with generally Sarah Churchwell she was on the podcast talking about Gone with the Wind that book The Wrath mm. to Come she also wrote a book about Marilyn Monroe it's called The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe it's really good mm. I would recommend that anyone read it she had a lot more agency than we give her credit for yeah yeah almost exactly, certainly yeah yeah and i think it's interesting because the phrase you've used a couple of times jen is dumb blonde and this isn't a criticism of you using it because i think it is what gets leveled at marilyn monroe but actually her characters they're not dumb no, they are not. blonde no. but they're all very savvy mm. and yeah. that manipulation you've just described in how she characterized her own life and like we're all allowed to do that whether it's true or not it still happens is sort of the same with her characters you're supposed to feel like they've got no agency that they've got nothing about them apart from being fit and pretty and actually she's really canny no i totally agree i think i think it's a weird way of viewing her characters but that is the the sort of persona. but i guess that's kind of the point i suppose that's sort of one of the things that maybe people liked about that persona was that it's presented in such a way but actually there is this other kind of side to it maybe i don't know well i suppose given that a lot of the cleverness of lorelei is that she is playing men men don't spot they're being played do they perhaps so maybe they didn't see that in her i mean piggy is the the example isn't it you Mm. know a Mm. much much older much much wealthier man and he believes the attentions of this absolutely gorgeous young woman I just genuinely, because she likes. <laughs> okay, mate. Okay. Because he is a good dancer, Mickey. He is. He's a very good dancer. A super good dancer. He's in Africa now, though. It's all fine. Not even the coast, Mickey. The interior of Africa. <laughs> it is funny. I'll give it that. It is funny. Yeah. I wouldn't rush to watch it again, but I am glad that I've kind of ticked it off a list of very classic films that I hadn't watched before. And it was funny and it was, you know, an easy enough, just shy of two hours to spend with those characters and I really did enjoy Dorothy's character a lot it made me laugh much more than I thought it would yeah I did actually think it was quite progressive in a lot of ways like in some ways absolutely not no not at all but they do both have agency and they are like just out there living Mm. their best lives doing what Mm. they fucking want to do right and I like the focus on their friendship I think that's quite progressive. Yeah, I agree. The the interesting thing is, it didn't make me think, hey, I want to seek out more Marilyn Monroe films. I want to see How to Marry a Millionaire. It didn't make me want to watch that, which I've never seen either. But it did make me Google when The Misfits is having an anniversary, because that is a good film. Yeah, watchable. I didn't object to watching it. I wouldn't seek it out again. Yeah. Mm, Totally. Well, should we do it then? 
Rated or dated? As ever, we set ourselves up with this being a binary question, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> it is very dated. I think it is very dated, but you know, it's still a decent watch. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it was rated. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Yeah, it's obviously dated, but not in a way that's especially offensive. I mean, I don't like its values, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who still have them. Yeah, and especially for for reminding me of of wonderful Tanya, the sadly departed Tanya. Uh, I'm going to say rated. That's the thing. I think like it, you know, bits of it are dated, but I also think a lot of the things that I don't like about this film, which is the values, are very, very much present in society still. So I, yeah, I wouldn't say it's my favourite film in the world, but I'm going to give it a rated because I don't think it is particularly dated. Don't assault anyone. Just (laughs) good to always put that at the end, isn't it? Hang on, the man I've got drugged in the corner is waking. I'll be back in a sec. (laughs) Listeners, again, this happens every single time and we just edit it out. (laughs) Who's next? It's me. It's me. And I'm taking us back to the 1980s. And we're going to watch bona fide Christmas film, Die Hard. Gets white vest out of laundry basket. Takes off shoes. Standard issue for all women.